Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning. Hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas and uh, Happy New Year um, to those of you that will make it to midnight. Um, my wife and I have started a tradition uh, where we don't make it to midnight, so instead we turn on the um, British um, uh, fireworks show and we celebrate with the kids at 7 o'clock. Put them to bed, and then we're out. And so uh, thank you to YouTube uh, for that, as uh, midnight is not uh, a time I want to spend. For those of you guys that will celebrate tonight, though, I hope you enjoy. Uh, parents of kids, uh, Pastor Theo will be around to give a packet to them this morning uh, during our time in the Word this morning. For the rest of you guys, though, go ahead and turn over to First uh, Peter um, we're kind of taking a, a break from the Gospel of John. We went through our Advent series, and uh, I'm, we're going to be in First Peter this morning. And then over the next couple weeks, um, we're actually going to preach through um, the church's vision and values just kind of as a, a reset for us to remember as we head into 2024 of who we are and what God is building us into. But uh, I want to finish 2023... Uh, with some encouragement from Peter's letter to uh, some churches that were scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. Um, And the reason why I want to do this, as you guys may or may not be aware, uh, 2024 is an election year. And I'm not sure where you sit this morning uh, with your relationship with politics, Um, But election years have a tendency to be a little abrasive, Um, especially in the last eight or so years. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, We can become frustrated over our options. We can become frustrated with the amount of coverage. Uh, There are families and friends that sit inside of different political ideologies and argue with one another. And I think as Christians, it can be particularly difficult as we can often feel like many of the options we're given to vote for do not properly align with our worldview as believers. Um, Very, very rarely have I ever went to the polls and thought, Whoever I was casting a vote for 100% represented what I thought the scriptures would have us do as a country. And the abrasiveness of this season can often be directed towards many of the things we hold dearly as beliefs as Christians. And that, that abrasiveness can sometimes come directly at you. Sometimes it can be directed at your belief system. And then sometimes we may even be tempted to participate in that abrasiveness. And the reason why I'm sharing this is, one, is it's important that we be aware that this is on the horizon, that, that we know this is coming so we can start being ready for how we're going to navigate this period. But the reason I want to share from First Peter this morning is that a lot of the issues that the churches in Peter's time were facing and dealing with have a lot of similarities to where I think we sit in our current cultural moment. Um, 
Now, our current cultural moment compared to what these churches were facing um, is uh, on a much smaller scale, but there still are similarities. Like, for example, the, the church in the first century that Peter is writing to is facing a ton of persecution just for basic beliefs and who they thought God was and what he was doing in their lives. They were often marginalized. Many of them had been pushed out of jobs, pushed out of families, pushed out of situations simply because of their beliefs. And these churches were struggling to understand how they had gone from this position or place of privilege, at least inside of Jewish life and culture, to being pushed on the outskirts, being persecuted for basic beliefs. And we in the United States, at least, over the course of the last 15 to 20 years, have really seen a shift towards Christianity that went from positive to neutral to almost negative in a lot of ways. And so Peter's opening remarks to these churches um, really is meant to give encouragement to exhausted Christians who are facing hostility from the world around them. So let me just read verse 1 to you because I want to point out two things to you from the opening portion of Peter's letter that will kind of lay some foundation for the rest of what we're going to look at this morning. So in verse 1, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I want you to zero in on that term that Peter uses there. He says, to those who are elect exiles. And by saying that, he's pointing out kind of two things that are a reality for all Christians. One, God has saved and chosen you as his own. And now, in this world... You are in exile. Your translation might say something like a sojourner in a foreign land or an alien to, to describe that word exile. But ultimately, the first thing he wants to let these Christians know is, hey, by being in Christ, by being a follower and disciple of Jesus, you are different. And the world you now live in is not your home. So that they would realize that in the midst of this persecution and seeing that things weren't right and that things were broken and seeing the way that people were treating them in this moment, that they can see, well, of course this place doesn't feel like home. I'm not with my heavenly father. And he's calling them not just to realize that, but to embrace that. That in being God's chosen elect exiles, this is their reality, but one that they should not necessarily be excited about, but know that it's better than what this world has to offer. Then he says, going on further down in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Meaning, not only are we different 
are we exiles in this land, but we've been born again that there is something new about us that we went from being dead to now being alive because of the resurrection of Jesus and that we live now to a hope and that hope is not dead, but he is alive, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven. And if we think through what Peter is saying here, it's kind of a charge to, to think and process through a few things, not just for these people in, first, in the first century in the Mediterranean world, but for ourselves as well. Right? If he's calling us elect exiles, he's saying, hey, there's something distinct and different about you as opposed to the rest of the world. Right? It's a call to embrace what's different or weird or peculiar about Christianity. You know, one of the things I do regularly when I'm interacting with non-believers is I just own up to the strange things that we believe in. We believe a first century Jewish carpenter was also God's son in the flesh. Kind of an odd story. We believe that that man lived a perfect life and then died in our place on a cross through no fault of his own, but went willingly subjecting himself to the will of his father. And we believe that same man rose from the dead three days later through the power of God. And it's true. And, we, that, and that is where we lay our hope in our future. And so this is a call to both embrace that, but know that in embracing that, you're going to have to live as an exile in foreign territory. It's why as I'm like praying for myself and for us collectively heading into 2024, that we will be different in the midst of the hostility and the craziness that I think 2024 has the potential to be. That when the world is angry about every little thing that happens, we aren't because we have a hope that is alive. And that we would instead pray for revival and for God to move. And so this inevitably leads to the question of what does it really mean for the church to be peculiar and to live as exiles? And that is what Peter addresses in our text this morning in verses 13 through 21. That if we are struggling to find our way in this current cultural moment, here's what running after that living hope looks like. And even if maybe we're not necessarily um, under pressure from the people, pressures, and problems of our current cultural moment, but maybe just even in our own life struggling in some area, Peter's words are both a comforting reminder of who you are in Christ if you are a follower of Jesus and a call to action in response to that reality. So look at verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1 with me where we see kind of this first point that Peter makes to them, which is where to set their hope. He says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he spent kind of those first 12 verses reminding them that their hope rested fully in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And in that, he says, now, in setting that hope, 
Here's what this looks like. And he shares three things just in that first verse for us. The first one is that we prepare our minds for action, which really is just another way of saying, be ready. Some translations actually render um, this, these verses, gird up the loins of your mind, which I think is fantastic because none of us talk like that, right? But to gird up your loins in first century Israel meant it was like an ancient practice where you would gather up your robes when you needed to move in a hurry. So like if you were moving quickly somewhere, you might pull up your robe and then and run off. You know, if you've ever been at a wedding and you see a lady in a longer dress and she's trying to dance or move somewhere, right? She pulls up the skirt, right? And kind of holds it so that they can move more quickly or move around, right? Here though, it's being applied metaphorically to our thought process, right? What Peter is saying is that we are called to pull in all the loose ends of our thinking and reject the hindrances of the world by focusing on the future promises of God toward us. So let me, let me give you an example of, of what we mean by this, because this is a little confusing if, you, if, if you're not like fully tracking with what Peter's trying to say here. So I have a friend who's a firefighter, and after he went through firefighter training, training safety school and, and did all of that and was fighting fires, one of the things I, I was talking with him one evening, and I was just like, you know, what is it about you and the people you work with that makes you so much more brave than everyone else? And he like, he like paused for a moment and thought about it. And then he said, well, he's like, I do think firefighters tend to have more bravery than the average human, but I don't think it's quite as much as you would think that it is. He said, one of the reasons that we're able to run into a burning building to try to rescue people when everyone else is running out is not just because of our level of bravery, but it's because we've prepared ourselves for that moment ahead of time. That we've prepared our minds to be ready to face all of the various situations that we might be confronted with. Whether it's smoke, whether it's having the proper gear, whether it's knowing when it's safe to enter in a room or not, when there's fire all around us, we've prepared ourselves through our training to be ready to experience whatever that fire might throw at us. And in the same way, Peter is calling these believers, he's calling us that to live in a world that is opposed to our belief system and way of life, one of the ways that we stand firmly in that living hope that Jesus Christ has given us is to be prepared for that reality, to be prepared for the fact that there are going to be people that detest some of the things we believe, right? Like one of the biggest things we face in this current cultural moment is the, the reality of universalism where we tell one another constantly, or we hear this constantly, well, what you believe is good for you, but don't place that on me. Which is fine if your belief system isn't making an exclusive truth claim. But if it is, to then hold to universalism is to deny the reality of what you say you believe in. And so we we rest in this living hope, according to Peter, by being prepared for that reality. It means we need to know what's going on around us. And we need to be prepared for the pushback that culture is inevitably going to give us for some of the things we believe as Christians. Whether that's in the religious realm, 
whether it's the way you carry yourself morally or whether it's what you might believe about how we vote and head into politics, that we are ready for the rejection and hindrance of those around us. Now, not only does he call us to be prepared, but he says, in being prepared, be sober-minded. Right? Another way to think through that is that we're aware of what's going around us all the time. You know, you guys have heard me preach on this a number of times, but one of the things that I think is important, especially when you're defending the faith with somebody or explaining the gospel, maybe you're, you're, you're sharing why you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, is in being ready to give a defense It's not just memorizing what you read in a book. It's often trying to understand the heart question behind the objection of the person that's talking to you. You know, I think one of the things that that we see in our current moment in history is there's a lot of the phrase church hurt being thrown around. And that then causes people to reject the truths of Christ and who he is. And church hurt is a real thing. Guys, this church has hurt me a number of times. I've likely hurt you before, right? But there's also such a thing as family hurt and friendship hurt and work hurt. And we tend to not just full stop reject those things because of hurt. So then why might we reject the truth of Christianity? Well, it's because the call of Scripture asks God's people to live a certain way, and so there's a higher expectation on that. And and so you need to be ready to navigate through the reality of this. I think one of my favorite quotes of all time was by uh, Tim Keller, and he was talking about the number of people that were deconstructing their faith in New York City at the church that he was pastoring at. And he said one of the things that he would always do is he would hear their story out. Hey, why, why are you deconstructing? He said, oftentimes those stories were wrought with her and people inside the church that had done horrible things towards them. And then he would say, okay, I, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm deeply broken over that. But you once claimed you believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What about your story now invalidates that reality? See, because our hope is not resting in an organization It's not even resting in a particular group of people. It's rested in the living hope of the resurrected Christ who is alive right now at the right hand of God the Father. And to be sober-minded is to be aware of what is going on in the lives of those around us and recognizing that spiritual warfare is a real thing. You know, some of us, myself included, need to recognize that one of the reasons we often feel under attack in this moment as Christians is that the world around us thinks that we know everything at this point. Naturalism is what we would term it in the philosophical realm. Right? That if we don't know the answer, we will find it eventually. And that might be true. We might. But there are also many things that we may never know the answer to. And the world system is set up against many of the, of the realities and things we believe as Christians, and it's important for us to be aware of this reality as we live. And so he calls us to be prepared. He calls us to be sober-minded, and then he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, Don't set your hope in other people. Don't set your hope in your job. Don't set your hope in a relationship. Don't set your hope in yourself. You have hope, but that hope rests 
fully in Jesus Christ. And to set that gaze on that hope is to prepare yourself, knowing that the world wants to pull that gaze away. But in being prepared, you start working out the reality of what it means to preach the hope that Jesus Christ died in your place, is your Savior, and is alive now. We hope in the promises of God. And so we live out this hope as we, we work out what it means to set our hope in Jesus by realizing that to, to live as Christians, to live as the church, the body of Christ, is a call to be in a hostile environment. And while we are in the midst of that hostile environment, we don't let that hostile environment deflect our gaze from our hope in Jesus. And as we do this, as we set our hope in Christ, right? look at what Peter says is a reality for those that do that. He talks about what we are becoming when we are in Christ, starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is one of those instances in Scripture of why I love God's Word so much. Because you see this often in the writings of Paul, but you also see it in Peter and a lot of the other New Testament authors. This thing that theologians call the indicative and the imperative. Where you see uh, a statement of fact made about God's people and then the command or the call to live in light of that truth. So, you know, we tend to, as human beings, read commands inside the Bible and then make following God about doing right and wrong. Because that tends to be transactionally how we live with other people. It tends to be how we navigate life. Think about almost any area of your life. It is based upon your performance. The job you have likely is because you met a series of qualifications in the screening process on the front end, and then you had to work through a process of interviewing. And then through that process of interviewing and that person trying to judge your merit based on that job, you then went through a trial period, usually the first 30 to 90 days of your job where they were trying to decide whether they wanted to keep you or not. And then you maintain that job and move up in that career based upon your performance. So much of life is built around this idea of our own performance. And yet, what Peter is saying here is, based upon the performance of Christ, live in this reality. Based upon God's work for you, here's how you live. And the first one that he throws out, he says, as obedient children. Now, this is intentional language, but it might seem kind of odd. But I actually think Peter's being super intentional here. See, children, by definition, don't know a whole lot. They're not born knowing how to navigate life. They're not born knowing that they are even a part of your family. They're completely dependent upon their parents. 
And so in using this analogy, children are a part of their family. They are the children of their parents, and yet their parents teach and admonish and discipline and disciple them so that they might grow to be productive human beings, that they are becoming something that they already are. One of the things I regularly tell my kids when I'm disciplining them is they're not asked to perform a certain way so that they have my favor or get to be my kids, but because they are my children, there is a standard that we live by, and we're striving towards that standard. See, children are learning to obey and respect their parents, and what Peter is saying here is that as we grow, as God's children, part of that process is our discipleship, that we are learning to become obedient unto the things of God when beforehand we were not. And this, by the way, should give us all a ton of hope. Because if you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for about five minutes, or if you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for 50 years, Peter using this language is saying, none of us have arrived yet. None of us have figured this out. None of this are perfectly obedient to God and doing this right all the time. But God's promise to us is that as we gaze upon him as our living hope, he is conforming us into the image of Jesus. And this work is being done. And, he, and the next thing he says goes directly in line with this, right? He says, do not be conformed to your passions in former ignorance. Basically saying, your passions are you doing whatever you want? To use the, the adage of our day, just follow your heart. Peter says, don't do that. Bad idea. If you're a Christian, don't do that. Don't trust it. If you've read the Old Testament at all, right? The Old Testament says this about your heart. It is deceptively wicked above all else. There's your hallmark moment for the, for the morning, Right? He says, instead, don't follow or be conformed to how you're feeling at any given moment or your passions, and don't be conformed by your former ignorance, meaning at one point in time, you had no idea who God was and what God wanted from your life, but now you do. Don't go back to your old ways. They don't bring joy. And instead, and this is the big one, be holy. Now, that is not a word we use a whole lot unless you're in church circles, right? You know, it's like you've never heard, you know, in a, in, in a conversation with friends, like, hey, have you met so-and-so? Oh, no, I don't. Tell me a little bit about them. Oh, yeah, they're really holy, right? It's like it's not something you hear us using. It's really kind of only a word that has now become reserved, right, in like religious language. But if you, if you kind of dig back to the word holy and figure out what it originally meant. In the New Testament, it was the Greek word hagias, and it just means to be sacred or pure or blameless, right? So like if you didn't do something and you go to court and you're declared not guilty, right, the word could be used in that situation. In the, in the same way in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word kadesh, and it, it meant 
something a little bit different. It meant apartness or sacredness or separateness. And this is really, really important because you have to remember that as God's people are recording his word in the Old Testament, one of the major things they're trying to do is remind God's people that their God is the true God and all the other gods that are around them are not real and that God is separate from them, that he's not one God among many gods, but he is God. And so this idea is, when we think about holiness, is this idea of separateness or being different. And I want to share with you a couple examples of this from the Old Testament so that we get the idea of like what God is after. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 15 with me, right? this is one of the first times you really see this idea fleshed out. But Exodus 15 verse 11 Here's Moses and the people of Israel are singing this song, and look at what they say in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Right? We see that when talking about the God of the Bible and using that word holy to describe him, what they're actually saying is there is no other being in this universe that is on par with the power of Yahweh, the power of God. There's no one like him. There is nothing like him. Even if the the pantheon of gods existed, they're nowhere near the power of God. Now, if you turn over to Isaiah 55, right? Isaiah says this in verses 8 and 9, and this is actually God talking to Isaiah. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? What we see there in this idea of holiness is God is not us. He's different than you. He thinks different than you. And this is actually really, really important because there is a tendency, even for those of us that grew up inside of the church and have an understanding and might even call ourselves followers of Jesus, that we think God should judge and think just like us, but maybe he's just a little bit smarter or stronger. And the reality is, You cannot begin to comprehend the chasm between your intellectual capacity and way to think through things and God's. It can't be done. Some of you guys in this room are doctors, teachers, philosophers. You are some of the brightest people I've ever met. You are nothing compared to the intellect of our God. And so often... Right? We get caught in this moment where we forget about the holiness of God. We forget about his character and who he really is. And because of that, when things aren't going our way or we have a judgment about a situation, we can't even begin to fathom why God might be allowing it to unfold the way that it is. I mean, if you've ever read the book of Job, brutal book. I mean, Job is just getting kicked down, kicked down, kicked down, and kicked down over and over again. And you get to the end, and God's finally restoring him, and he's getting to speak to God. And there was this moment the first time I ever read this book, and I didn't know what happened in the story. I'm like, this is it. Job's, 
Job's going to find out why God allowed all of this to happen to him. And so Job's sitting there, and he's talking with God, and he's like, God, all this stuff happened to me, and I didn't do anything to deserve any of it. Like, why? Why did you let this happen? And you know what God's response was? Where were you when I spoke the universe into existence? And if, at first glance, when I'm reading that, I'm like, that's not an answer. What the heck is this? Like, the audacity. And then I'm like, well, actually, though, really what he's saying is, is this. You have no idea the magnitude of what is going on in any given millisecond as I hold the universe together. You think your suffering is bigger than me holding the entire universe together second by second? And when you start understanding that difference and start understanding the chasm, you realize that there are going to be some things about this life that you just cannot fully comprehend because you are not God. But you know him and you can hope in him. Turn over to Habakkuk 1.13 with me. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So as Habakkuk cries out at the wickedness that he sees all around him, what does he say about God? God, you are completely separate from sin and sinless, unable to do so. Friends, when, when we see this call here, that as obedient children, right, as we're becoming more like Jesus, as we will see here in just a minute, that it starts with resting in the living hope that is Jesus Christ. And one of the things that God is going to do in you is to make you like him, which is holy. But understand this, God's character is distinct and different. And this is why, by the way, as Christians, we should never grow weary of preaching to one another the reality of sin's harmfulness and our need for repentance. God desires that we pursue holiness because he is holy. And to be like him is for our good. So I think so often when we think about holiness, we distill it down to just this idea of right and wrong. But think about the reality of the holiness of God. The holiness of God is what led to the compassion of God towards us in Christ. Right, look at Philippians chapter 2. Right? Paul is writing to this letter to the church at Philippi and calling them to love one another the way that Christ loved. And look at what he says, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You already have this. You already have the ability to love and care for one another. It's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means like held onto or lorded over, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
You're already starting to see here as Paul's writing this, the distinction between God and man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was holy. He came down in our place to hostile territory, lived holy and distinct, and saved us. God's holiness is not something he lords over us. It's something that he is, and in that, he moved towards us in compassion. And so as we were becoming more like him, pursuing being more like him, as we see in verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the last thing he says there is you should be holy in this and all your conduct. This means that we stop doing this thing where we make a distinction between sacred and secular. Where we're Christians at Sunday school or at church on Sunday or at our community group or when our men's prayer group is gathering or whatever it might be, that there is no distinction between those two things. Because conduct is the manner in which a person behaves. It's the idea of how we carry ourselves. And not surprisingly, that's wrapped up in something God said back to his people all the way in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. It includes our adoration, our devotion, and our speech. So when God tells his people to love the Lord their God with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength, he's talking about our conduct. That heart and soul is wrapped up in what we might call adoration, right? That we are growing and awakening our hearts to worship. For example, last night my wife and I went to a Mexican restaurant with our kids, and I worshiped God as I sat there because the cheese sauce that was on that steak I had was worthy of praise. Thank you. It's like, look, I, I'm not entirely sure what's going to be served at the banquet feast of Christ, but I really hope that cheese sauce is there. All of life can contain worship, even something as simple as a meal. Not just the fact that God provides for us sustenance, but that he gave us taste buds to enjoy it. That you can worship and adore God gladly in your heart at all times. With all your strength is your devotion. That this means that your commitment to him trumps all other commitments. And that you're intentional in seeking the Lord. And by the way, guys, we're getting ready to have our New Year's resolutions. Now's a great time to be intentional about seeking the Lord more. It's really, you can do that any day, any time, any hour but you're going to be thinking about it a little bit more, do it now. And then in our speech is with our mind, using language that edifies and looks for opportunities to speak of God's grace towards others. And so Peter says, because you have set your hope in the living hope of Jesus Christ, you are obedient children. And as obedient children, 
Put off these former ways of thinking. Pursue righteousness and holiness in all conduct. Not because you're trying to earn God's favor by doing these things, but because you already are his children, you get to do them. Which inevitably leads to the question, how? Like, how can I do this, right? Because inevitably, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you realize you might try this and do well for about five minutes, and then you fail. One of the things I always tell married couples on their wedding day is right before they exchange the vows and promises that they make to one another is that they're likely going to break them before they leave the reception. Someone is going to irritate the other and you're already going to be violating them. And so Peter kind of gives us this encouragement to bring this idea home. He says this in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges, impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. But he says in that first verse that I read there, verse 17, call on him as father. Basically what he's saying to us is, know who you are. Know who dad is. And when things get rough, call him. One of the things that's been great in my own life is when I was a teenager, I thought my dad was the dumbest person on this planet. And then I got married and had kids, and good grief, what a waste of time and intelligence I, I used during my teenage years. I'm calling my dad all the time. Hey, Dad, like, what do I do with my 401k? What is this? Hey, Dad, how do I navigate these bills and get out of debt? What's, what's going on here? Hey, Dad, like I remember a couple years ago, um, it was raining on 43rd Street, and I had my kids in the car, and I was approaching the light, and the light changed yellow and then red very, very quickly. And because it was raining, I just decided I'm going. I'm not going to slam on my brakes and slide into the intersection. And there was a cop right behind me. And he pulled me over, and he made me get out of the car, and he wrote me a ticket. And it was raining outside. This guy made me stand out in the rain as he wrote me a ticket. And I'll just be honest, as I know we have some police officers here, I was not happy with your fellow officer that day. Like, like, like big mad. And so I'm like, this is an injustice and an outrage. Like, I know what the law says. I was already past that white line anyway. I didn't technically even run the light. I know what the statute says. I researched it. I was just like, I was ready to, to go down to the Alachua County Sheriff's Office and fight my cause. And so I'm praying about what I'm going to do and if I'm going to call this guy. And I'm like, you know what I need to do right now? I need to call my dad. Because he knows who I am and what's going on. So I'm like, dad, here's the situation, what's going on. He's like, yeah, that's tough. But man, you love yourself a lot, don't you? Why are you so upset about this? Right? And he helped me navigate through this and see this clearly because he knew me. Right? He helped me to handle the situation, by the way, way better than my original plan. 
He's like, yeah, why don't you just like call and try to figure out like what exactly is going on and then maybe figure out what you need to do when you go to court to fight it instead of going in ready to fight. And it went way better. And what is being said here by Peter is if you know who your dad is, you can go to him when things are going rocky, when things aren't turning out the way that you wanted them to. And you go to him, even in your failure as a child, and dad helps out. Then he says, not only do you go to your dad when you need him, but he says, conduct yourself with fear. Which seems odd, right? Because we're talking about the love of God and setting our hope on him. But that word fear, really oftentimes in the grand scheme of things of what we read in the Bible, is this idea of respect. Oftentimes we fear things because we give so much respect to them. And so, yes, there is a fear of God because he's the creator of all things and can end us in a moment, but really it's because he's worthy of respect. Right? Some of you might fear your, fear your teacher because they are in control of your grade. And so what do you do? You obey them. Some of you guys have a boss that you fear, and you do what they say. Why? Because they're in charge of whether you get paid or not. They have that power. And so you do what they say. But ultimately, what Peter is communicating here is that fear properly placed is placed in God. Right? Think about what is said in the proverb, in Proverbs 29, 25, where Solomon says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That fear properly placed in God recognizes that God is greater than your friends, your family, your boss, or anything else this world might have power over you in. I love how John Bloom, one of the creators of DesiringGod.org, put it. He says, God has the power to free us, and he wants us living in the safe freedom of trusting him. But he frees us not by removing our fear of disapproval, but transferring it to the correct place. And typically, he frees us by helping us face our false fears so that they lose their power over us. Ultimately, what he's saying is that fear rightly placed in God helps us to overcome the false fears of man all around us. And so therefore, right, as we're seeking to live this out, as we set our hope on the living God, right, we're first called to know who we are in him, to fear him properly, and out of that fear, Right, we realize that our hope is ultimately in God. Look at what he says in verses 18 through 21 again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Ultimately remember and realize where your hope is and what that hope is. The promise of hope 
The living hope that he talked about all the way back in verse 3 is that you were ransomed from your feudal ways. It means it's been fully paid for. A ransom means it's fully paid for that we inherited from our fathers. And that that payment was made by the blood of Jesus. So therefore, you know that that ransom has been paid because the blood of Christ has already been shed. And that in that ransom, you were made a believer in God through him. And therefore, our faith and our hope is in God. We look not to our own holiness, even though in that living hope, this causes us to work towards obedience. But that hope is not in how much more obedient you are today than yesterday and how much more obedient you are tomorrow than today. No, the hope is in the blood of Christ shed for you. And from that hope, you are becoming an obedient child. So look not to your own holiness, but instead to Jesus. Trust in his blood, not your works. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a minute and I'm gonna give us a few minutes to respond to this. Knowing that hey, I, I don't have a crystal ball, I'm not a prophet, so you know, maybe 2024 won't be that bad. I don't know. I'll be honest, I'm not super hopeful. I'm just not. Seems like things are getting crazier and crazier all the time. Right? But maybe I'll be wrong. And I, I will, if, if I am, I will happily be so. Maybe we'll all get to December and be like, man, this was such a chill year. So great. Like, hope 2025 is just like 2024. But my hope is not in how this year is going to go. No, instead, the call of Peter is for our hope to be placed in the living hope that is Jesus Christ. And so I want us to respond exactly the way Peter asked us to as we started out this passage this morning. To prepare our mind for actions. And so we're going to have some time to respond to communion here in just a moment. But one of the things I want you to do this morning before you take communion is to prepare your mind for action. And, what, and how I want you to do that is I don't want you to sit there and resolve for what great thing you're going to do this year. No, instead I want you to do this. I want you to reflect on God's goodness to you. What is one way you can tangibly see God's goodness towards you this year? Maybe it's the fact that you're still standing here, that you made it to church this morning. Maybe you've had such a great year that you might not have enough time this morning to think about all the ways he's been good to you. But reflect on his goodness towards you. And then I want you to ask yourself, in being sober-minded, where are my affections? If I think about my life right now, what am I drawn towards? What do I love? And where is my love towards God in the midst of all that? And then once you're done asking yourself those questions, we're going to practice setting our hope on Jesus because he has saved you if you are a Christian this morning by taking communion. We take communion every week here. And one of the reasons we do that is because it is a practice that God has set up for us to practice setting our hope on him. By taking the bread and juice, we are saying that the body and blood of Christ shed for us is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins and that we are God's children. 
and we take it, not as an act of penance or even as a work, but we take it joyfully as a reminder, preaching hope to ourselves as I eat this bread and as I drink this juice, Christ's body and blood was shed and broken for me for the forgiveness of sin. And he is alive. And I'm going to now lean into that hope by repenting of sin and trusting that he is sufficient.